This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High-quality information. Because high-quality information informs much better decision-making. Dittman Research has been providing high-quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com Okay, very excited to be back here on Zoom with uh, Commissioner Adam Crum. How you doing, Adam? Doing well, man. It's uh, it's been a year. <laughs> we did our first podcast. I just looked it up, February 2020. So it's been that was right right after the Wuhan flight, and that was the big kind of you know news point way before the COVID got to what we've you know experienced all of us in the last year. Yeah, it's uh, life has changed over the last year. The, a lot of uh, a lot of unexpected twists and turns, um, but uh, it's kind of cool to see how everything just kind of came together for the state. You know, mm-hmm. typically you don't think about Alaska on the leading edge when it comes towards healthcare related items, but uh, pretty neat how we all responded. Yeah, there's so much I want to talk about. The, the first thing is um, you just had a baby, right? Just had a baby, beautiful baby girl, Elizabeth Rose. This is uh, first one. It's been a long time coming for my wife and I and just an absolute blessing. So you're, we're same age. You're 36. Mm-hmm. So I, I told, I was actually joking with Adam Wool, Representative Wool, a couple of days ago. He uh, he's got he's in his late 50s, has two kids. He started kind of late, got married in his early, I think early 40s. And I, I said I got to get on the Adam Wool plan. You know, I got to <laughs> hurry up and make something happen. Um, so first one is that is that must be such a change with your job and. You know, I have a lot of friends with kids and like the sleeping and all, you know, I hear all the stories. Yeah, it has been uh, a definite change uh, trying to figure out how that's going to work. But, uh, you know, this is something that we've been working towards for a very long time and uh, kind of uh, just grateful to have it. Like I joke with my brothers that uh, even when she's wailing is, you know, newborns do because she's only three weeks old that uh, I'll hold her up in front of my face. Like, oh, she's crying in my face. This is so special. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have one friend. She has three kids and it's so different. I mean, one of them was like a crier nonstop, but the other, the second one just never cried. So it's kind of like, you know, roll the dice. It is. uh, My little brother had, uh, had his second baby in uh, January 1st of this year. And it's a little boy. And so it's kind of cool. Got cousins that are only like 10 weeks apart. Um, But uh, this little dude, he doesn't cry. He, he doesn't, he doesn't make it. He's the most mellow kid we've ever seen and it's uh with the running joke is he may have like the best baby in the family title uh but it's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of crazy well there's a lot i want to talk about i mean the, the first thing is i gotta tell you i mean when you you know you got appointed right after the governor was elected in 18 and you know you were confirmed and, and your confirmation was a little more uh you know controversial than some of the other ones that were like 55 or 58 and you know i'll be honest i've known you not super well but through like kind of before my oil and gas uh time and seeing you around RDC and all the different things. And uh, we're same age. And I was kind of surprised. And I'll be honest, I was a little skeptical. I mean, I, I knew you were like an oil and gas guy. And I got to say, I think you've been maybe one of the biggest surprises. I've heard so many people who have been so impressed, even some of the people who are really very skeptical of you, legislators or uh, government folks. Um, so I kind of want to ask you about why you've been, 
you know, so successful. And it seems to me most people say you've just been a really good manager. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that and if you've heard that from other, other people, because I know your vote was a little, like I said, a little closer than some of the other folks. Uh, it was uh, it was very tight. Um, I didn't even watch the vote. Couldn't watch the vote. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like it's like one of those things. Like, oh my god, I hope I hope I get it. I, I went for a drive north of Juneau when it was going on, and I just um, sat down in an awesome spot by the sea and just waited till my phone started blowing up and looked at it to find out one way or another. You know, it, it's uh, it's been a good year, and I think that was one of the primary reasons. You know, why the governor? You talking about like the management side, health and social services is so dang big that you're never going to find somebody who's done all of the different jobs at all the divisions. And when the, typically this role, somebody who's come from the healthcare system um, or has worked very closely in one of the specific divisions. And, you know, sometimes with that, you get a little dogmatic, you, you know, that world very well, and that's all you see. Um, and, you know, when the uh, conversations, you know, when we looked at this, I do have a master's in public health. And um, when I applied for this position and conversations about, you know, the governor's asked, okay, why do you want this? And what this is what we're looking for. It's just somebody, like you said, who had the ability to manage and put together teams. You know, my, I think one of my benefits is, is I uh, um, definitely don't care who gets the credit and I am definitely willing to hire. I have so many people and staff and team members who wanted to come in that are just so incredibly smart and talented that uh, I can help make the, you know, make a decision and get out of the way and let them do their work. And they're doing a great job. That's the saying, you know, you can get a lot done in politics if you don't care who takes the credit. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing I've heard from a lot of people who, who have told me in the department, it's very big. So you talk to folks, but um, you let people, you, you empower people to kind of do their job and um, don't micromanage them unless something comes up, you know, unless something ha mm -hmm. has to come to your, comes to your attention that there's an issue. But most people have said that, you know, they're, they're very happy with how you've let folks kind of um, do their jobs without sometimes people micromanage or want to be involved in every decision, which is impossible for, I mean, how many people work at Hess? 3,500. Damn. So you have what, probably five or 10 folks reporting to you or um, like directly? Yeah, kind of roughly speaking. I tried to, I tried to limit it and, and knock it down a little bit um, and make sure that each of my deputy commissioners have policy staff. So I, somewhere less than 10, right? You, the goal is in any management theory, right? You don't want more than seven. Yeah. And, I mean, this is like the, where the military structure is based mm -hmm. on that and been, you know, big, big companies. Uh, so, I mean, uh, I wanted to ask you about Anne Zink. I mean, she's been like, I did a couple podcasts with her. She's actually, because Nat Hurst from Public Media, Alaska Public Media, did a story on her last year. And he asked me if he could use one of my pod, I did two podcasts with her. One was a long time ago. I met her with um, the, oh my gosh, what's her name? The former head of Ashna who went to Oregon. Uh, oh my God, I'll think of it in a second. Becky Holtberg. Becky Holtberg. So I met her with Becky Holtberg and I just did coffee shop and we just, kind of talked into the podcast and Nat included that podcast in my, in his story. And that's like of all my podcasts I've done. I mean, Lisa Murkowski, Dan Sullivan, all these people, the governor, she's number one now. She's <laughs> run up to the top of hundreds of podcasts. She's number one. Um, but she seems to be kind of somebody that is almost in some ways the face of the, the pandemic in a lot of ways. And uh, she came yeah. on kind of like summer 19, right? Yeah, she, she was able to join in uh, July of 2019. So she was somebody that uh, when we took over, um, 
you know, the administration, Dr. Jay Butler stayed on as the chief medical officer, which was just, was just fantastic. He's a, such an incredibly talented, smart guy. You know, he's now with the CDC um, and, you know, deputy director of infectious diseases. And he stayed on uh, for about, I think it was five weeks. And, and I was talking with him about who else can work towards this job? Because we need a chief medical officer for the state. You know, it, it's about, can you think about big picture and systems? And Anne's name was one of the first ones that came up and talked with some trusted colleagues. And um, I reached out to her and I got a hold of her. And I believe the first time I talked to her, she was in Bhutan. Um, she was traveling around the mm -hmm. world on, on a year long sabbatical. Uh, studying healthcare systems. We had a great talk and she wasn't coming back to Alaska. And, you know, I talked to her, I think it was first week of January and she wasn't coming back till July. And I said, all right, I would like to stay in touch. And uh, in the interim, found a, a, an incredible CMO, did a great job knowing that it was, you know, like a six to seven month role in Dr. Lily Liu. Um, and she did a, a great job for us. And then uh, just wanted to continue to stay in touch with Anne about what are some of the things we could do? Because we're looking at Overall, with public health, it has to deal with like chronic health and prevention and, you know, getting kids to be active and stay away from sugary drinks. And how does this work into our overall healthcare system cost? And Anne was just seeing this great big picture. And I was like, you know, her level of energy, I want this person on my team. And so when she came back, I was like, you know, please join. And so we're just lucky as a state to have her. She, and, she, you know, she is high energy, super high energy. You know, you mentioned, you know, like uh, this is one thing too is, when this came about, when the, the plane landed, um, and I was like, all right, so we have to go through this. All right, and this is what we need right here. And oh, she the, put together- the, the Wuhan plane? Yeah, the Wuhan plane. When that, when that happened in January, and then uh, she was handling this, and then I was like, you know, okay, you know, typically, you know, she goes directly to me. She's like, she's, she's one of my direct reports, and I go to the governor. And as we're going through this, I was like, this is going to be, this situation is going to be huge. And the governor needs information immediately. So I made sure I was like, sir, you, you need to you need to make sure we have Anne included in these meetings. And so it was, you know, from that end of January of 2020 onwards, Anne's been a part of the conversation and having that direct from the medical professional's mouth to the governor um, has really I think that's what, one of the big changes. One of the reasons we've been so successful in Alaska is the governor has been so willing to actually have direct conversations with his health staff. So, I mean, you, you or Dr. Zink wouldn't have had any idea, you know, about this COVID situation. Nobody could have probably even dreamed of it. You know, it's been a hundred years since something <laughs> like this has happened. So I guess when, when did you realize, like, when did you realize, you know, like shit got real? Was it the first shutdown or was it the Wuhan? Cause I remember for me, it was like the shortages of supplies and, and then kind of the, the actual, I was in Juneau and the actual lockdown when there was like nobody outside. Mm -hmm. The, uh, what it really hit home for us is we anticipated, we know that Alaska, you know, we're sometimes on our, our hospital care, we're a little short on beds. Uh, and the numbers we started seeing out of Washington, a lot, you know, Washington state people forget was the first real hotspot in the United States. Mm -hmm. And the number of the deaths of, it was the uh, case fatality rate of the cases found with the deaths that were occurring and, you know, they were in long-term care facilities, but those numbers coming up. And when we had our conversations with our hospital counterparts in Seattle, cause you know, Seattle is a part of Alaska's healthcare system, right? A lot of our critical services and 
surgeries and other, you know, long outpatient care can happen in Seattle. And when they said, do not send Alaskan patients down here, we were like, okay, we need to, to work to make sure we keep our system up and running. So do you think, um, for me at least, when it first started, and it was like total uncertainty and you're hearing all these different, you know, Joe Rogan did a podcast with this infectious disease guy and people were talking about 2% or 3%. I mean, you know, it was like really kind of frightening. Um, and luckily, you know, it's been far less leaf. I mean, it's still been horrible, but far less than some of the original initial projections. Um, and, you know, now we, I want to ask you about the disaster declaration. It expired in January. Um, now the house passed an extension and the Senate's kind of debating it, but the governor's saying he doesn't need it. He just needs some things. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's like, on one end, I, I know this is a thing and it's, it's caused a lot of problems. It's killed people. Um, but in Alaska, you know, it's not been nearly as bad as other places in the country or the world. And I, I guess talk a little bit about the declaration and then maybe a little bit about the COVID fatigue from, you know, I have some more questions about kind of the vaccine and the masks and all that, but um, a little bit about the declaration and, and then maybe why some people are you know, app apprehensive about um, going forward with a quote unquote disaster when yeah. things aren't you know, nearly as bad up here as other places. You know, it's uh, when the governor did his uh, last disaster declaration on January 15th, we knew it was going to expire February 14th and we put forward a bill in order to extend it. When we put forward that bill, we identified, look, we need certain things in order to continue this. Here's what we haven't done. And it caused this big brouhaha to where there wasn't actually legislative support to pass it. And, you know, in the six weeks since that occurred, um, the, you know, we still had to function. We still had to figure out how we're going to put one foot in front of the other and provide services to Alaskans. So we uh, really narrowed down, said, all right, we need these exact things in order to continue moving along with our plan. And along with that, when we started seeing this huge drop off in our hospitalizations, and it's, it's pretty amazing when you look at, um, you know, like today, we're at 33. Yesterday, we were at 27 hospitalized. We had a high of, I think it was 151 in uh, December, in November. And it shows you that uh, the vaccine works 100% for preventing severe illness and hospitalization. That's the really cool thing about it. And so we looked and said, you know what, we've got these specific things because COVID fatigue is very real. You know, Ann and I talk, Dr. Zink and I talk all the time about how tired we are having to deal with this stuff and talk about it. I can't imagine what it is for the general public, you know, and just their, their whole life changed being around this. And so one thing that we're doing and the governor has been trying to articulate and share with leadership is, you know, you can't normalize a disaster, right? That, that's the thing is, yes, there are powers and a lot of broad authorities in the disaster declaration. But at this point in time, with only 33 people hospitalized, we, we, we don't need the full disaster declaration. We need a really targeted approach. Instead of, you know, instead of the, the axe, let's just go with the scalpel. Let's do this because... With all the talk of the variants, you don't know if the cases are going to rise and, you know, continue to jump off the map. And if we ever got to the point to where our hospitalizations started skyrocketing, you know, the governor still has the authority to declare another disaster declaration, right? Because that would be a different situation than it is from today. If that was the case, we'd want it to be, if we got to the point where the governor needed to declare another disaster declaration, we want people to pay attention. 
But if we're just under this constant malaise of a disaster declaration, we're afraid we're, the general public's going to stop paying attention to us and the mitigation protocols. I mean, I saw it today. It, it seems like there was quite a few, I mean, 649 cases, which I don't know if some of that is for a couple of days or. That was over four days. Oh, okay. All right. So that, that makes Because there was sense. a state holiday on Monday. So mm-hmm. that's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday data. Okay. So, so not, not one, not one day. Yeah. Um, I mean, so can you, I mean, appreciate for, for the public and it's, this is, this isn't you guys, um, but it seems like more on the national level. I mean, it seems like the vaccine gets rolled out. People are getting the vaccine uh, and then there's new variants. And then the CDC says, keep wearing a mask and we don't know how long it's going to last. And I read this stuff and, you know, I feel like I got my first vaccine. A lot of people have gotten them, but in some ways it's like, whenever something positive happens, cases go down, but we still got to wear the masks and we still have to, you know, we don't know what's going to end and, and nobody will give us any kind of, you know, for me, for me, at least it's frustrating. And I know a lot of people I talk to, it's, it's frustrating. You know, what's the, what's the, I mean, we can't do this forever. There's just not, it's not going to be accepted, but what, where do we find the balance and, and get some more maybe assurance from the public? hundred percent agree. The, uh, throughout this whole thing, it, it definitely, I can see how the general public believes, you know, the goalposts have been moved, right? You know, I'm a, I'm a former football player. And I was just going to say, just, yeah, you played college football, right? So yeah. Don't move, don't so move the goalpost. The goalpost, the goalposts have moved and the field keeps getting longer. And what does that mean? And that's one of those internal conversations we have is at this point in time, right? Those who, those who are those frontline healthcare workers, those who work in long-term care facilities and deal with the public, right? We had a lot of people super eager to go get the vaccine. But now as we're getting up towards this little bit of a saturation point to where we're having like some vaccine hesitancy, we need to make sure there is a clearly articulated, very direct line as a benefit as to why somebody who's not quote unquote high risk should get the vaccine. And that's, that's this part that it's, it's hard to see sometimes, but I would say some very good news has come out recently. The CDC study last week, which said that actually after your first dose um, two weeks after your first dose, you're about 80% protected. And um, after the second dose, you know, 90% plus. And this is the real world data of the shots being given since December of millions, hundreds of millions of people, right? So that's pretty fantastic. The second thing is, is there was a, an MMWR from the CDC. This is the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Review. And it was also mentioned today, the CDC director, um, Dr. Walensky, um, actually said, what they're seeing is that if you are vaccinated, you don't seem to carry the virus. And so hopefully what this can translate into is that you get vaccinated, we can figure out some kind of caveats around the mask recommendations. We don't know what that's going to be, um, but this is some messaging that we're going to be working on internally and hopefully nationally it changes the tune. So people understand there is a direct benefit to getting the vaccination. Um, not only just in social behaviors, but also how it does actually protect you. Why do you think, I mean, I think obviously a lot of it's political, but the hesitancy, I mean, last couple of media just did, Nat Hurst did an article about legislators. And it seems like almost all the Democrats got the vaccine or are going to get it. And then some of the Republicans didn't want, you know, some said they weren't going to get it. Some wouldn't answer. Um, you know, it seems like every day, nowadays, everything's political, but are you seeing, I mean, why do you think, there's like a political divide on this thing. I mean, you know, just... It, it just has to do with if you're not comfortable with the whole process, if you think that throughout the entire pandemic, if the goal line's been moved and then all of a sudden a vaccine gets created, it almost seems like a panacea. 
that yeah. there's some natural to be some skepticism towards that. And, you know, I can share, um, I myself, I've got my first dose. I'm a week or two away from getting my second dose. Are, are you a team Pfizer or team Moderna? Uh, Moderna. I'm also team Moderna. I really wanted the Pfizer and people kept asking why. And I said, I don't know, other than, you know, they made Viagra. So maybe, maybe that's why. I don't have no idea. Why. <laughs> so I, I went, uh, it was Moderna happened to be available when I did uh, one of the mass vaccination clinics at Raven Hall in, in Wasilla and in Palmer. And, uh, you know, it, it's the, I've, I've had the benefit of being a part of these conversations federally about the entire process. A lot of people don't realize that they did the genetic sequencing for the spike protein on SARS-CoV-2 at the end of January of 2020. And that the mRNA platforms for Pfizer and Moderna, they already existed because they'd that been was, part of the prior, prior that research. A, that was a Chinese did that, right? Or was that collaborative? Uh, it was a combination of like worldwide laboratories kind of collaborated on it. Um, but then Moderna, the first shot in arm of the Moderna vaccine, the mRNA vaccine was in March 16th of 2020 because they already had the mRNA platform. So can you talk, and I'm not a scientist, so I, you know, I don't get too in the weeds, but what's the difference between the mRNA kind of vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson's is more traditional vaccine. Is that right? Yeah. So the Johnson and Johnson's an adenovirus, um, which, you know, this is something, you know, bring up Dr. Zink or Dr. McLaughlin for the specificity on it. And so, yes, there are a lot more vaccines traditionally made in a similar manner towards that. The mRNA um, has been used in research for uh, cancer treatment, um, but the platform on it has shown that it's quite um, powerful in how your T cells respond to it and understanding about what it means and how they can see those, uh, um, those viruses next time up in your body. And so it's a, I think that's a little bit of a comfort level. We're, we're seeing a little bit that uh, as more J&J comes into the state in different clinics or pharmacies have this, the J&J, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or Janssen vaccine, um, people, are, are people that have been prior hesitant have more confidence in that vaccine. I that actually want, I, I really wanted that J&J, but that was not even an option. I got my first one, I guess about over two weeks ago. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. scheduled for my second one next week. Uh, here in Juno, so I, so we're I, hoping, you know, that as that becomes more available, got a good a uh, good idea today in a White House call that the numbers are going to increase on that one. It's going to be a little bit more variable, uh, but hopefully, you continue to get more and more of that stock in state, and so people are a little bit more comfortable with a single dose vaccine on a traditional platform. Are you are you familiar with this AstraZeneca situation? I mean, I know they've they're waiting approval. They have they have a bunch of doses, I guess, made or. Um, and maybe that might go abroad. It sounds like I've been reading different things about, about that one. Yeah, I know the AstraZeneca has been used broadly uh, across the UK and some European countries. And it, there, it's just an interesting situation. Apparently there was some of the data that was presented towards uh, the FDA groups uh, seemed to be cherry picked, I think they said. So they just wanted to see all of the broad data and what this means. Different studies in different countries, they some of them was one dose, some was one and a half doses. And Little things like that was a little weird. And so they're just trying to get all of that kind of lined up is my rudimentary understanding of it. Yeah, it's so interesting that the vaccine, especially of late, the last maybe couple of decades, the hesitancy. I mean, I think we all know about, you know, polio and smallpox and all these things that vaccines eradicated for the most part. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there who are, I guess, the anti-vax movement that's it's kind of been the last 20 or 30 years. But it's incredible how people, I think, seem to discount or maybe not, you know, want to admit the power of, of vaccines in the 20, you know, 20th century. Yeah, it's, uh, it is really interesting. There was a, uh, somebody pointed out to me a, a cartoon from 1930 that actually had to do with uh, 
anti-vaxxers and vaccines and things like that. And it was just like, oh, it's the same conversation. And we're almost 100 years later. And I mean, I've seen some news articles from like 1919, 1920, where uh, they're like telling people it's crazy, like wear the mask or like you're going to like get arrested. <laughs> you know? Like stuff like that, you know, there were masks were a thing then and they were telling people to kind of stay home. And there was a you know hesitancy. I think maybe more so in the United States, we're a very independent, you know, people and we don't like to be told stay home. I mean, China, they 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 lock down over there hard. Yeah. You know, it's kind of the like you said, like a cultural thing, and like particularly in Alaska, that was one of the things why, you know, when we did uh we called it a social distancing order early on, and mm-hmm. it wasn't uh stay home, it was go outside with your family. I mean, that, that might have been one of the most frustrating things for me. And I think a lot of folks was, it was March, the shutdown, okay, April, it was really bad. You know, people weren't working, all this stuff. But then summertime, I think for almost all, especially if you're in, you know, South Central or even Southeast, it was pretty normal. You know, you go outside, you go hunting, you go fishing, you go, you know, on a cab, you, whatever, you go out. Um, and then fall came winter, and then it got, the, the cases started to go up, and then it started to get maybe a little more real. And I think people got really used to, you know, four months of four or five months of relative normalcy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a lot of friends I talked to with kids or kids in college or people working, you know, that came back to Alaska for that purpose. Because imagine being in Seattle or Chicago or New York in a building. I mean, you can't, you really can't go anywhere. Yeah. You couldn't go anywhere. And I just heard this uh, anecdotally uh, in a meeting last week, somebody mentioned that uh, it was like the busiest years for mortgage in Anchorage in like 30 years. You know, it's so wild because I, I have a little condo and I've been kind of looking to get a bigger place maybe. And it's just, I have some friends in real estate and there's very little inventory and everything just goes quick. And I, it's just puzzling. You know, you think times are tough and unemployment and these things, but I mean, the markets and the rates are low and it's just popping off right now in Anchorage. I mean, think, I had a friend put the house for sale for, I think, two, listed at 230, sold it for 240. You know, like a couple days later, there was like a higher offer than what they were asking for. That doesn't normally happen in Alaska. Normally it's the other <laughs> <No>. direction. <laughs> so, well, I mean, so what do you, I mean, it's, it's um, almost April. Uh, where do you, where do you see things? You know, I know Biden, President Biden said 4th of July, we're supposed to be having parties again. Is that kind of. You know what, uh, what the cool thing is in Alaska, we are so far ahead of the curve. Um, so uh, Something on the uh, federal news today said, you know, they hope by the end of April that all Americans could be eligible. I'm like, Governor Dunleavy announced that like three or four weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the other question I was going to ask you is what, why were we one of the, you know, I know there's been some some folks of, of uh, kind of created the native health, the tribal health. Um, is it because we're a small population state or not? Because, you know, it's all, you know, it's all based on per capita population, right? So wh- why were we so quick the first state to be able to offer you know mass yeah so um we're, it's unique that we have a centralized public health for the state um while there's like typical public health agencies around other states they actually have quite powerful um you know down south it'll be uh counties right and right. then you're dealing with either counties or municipal public health groups and so the coordination sometimes gets lost in translation you know, by coming in with us, uh, it was fantastic that uh, ANTHC, Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, we asked them, can you be our co-partners in our vaccine strategy? And we started meeting last August, trying to figure out, all right, how are we going to do this? Because, 
you know, they've got upwards of 200 clinics around the state that they help coordinate with, with tribal health. And we knew that if we're going to move this material around a huge state, that we need to use our local expertise as much as possible. And that was, I think, one of the benefits is we've got a sophisticated tribal health system and we have a centralized public health. And dealing with outbreaks in Alaska is kind of the normal, so to speak. Uh, there is the, the CDC has what's called the EIS, the, uh, I think it's a epidemiological intelligence service. And they go down, people go down there for a fellowship and we recruit out of there. You get a practice epidemiology in Alaska because we have the highest counts of tuberculosis, which we just did a press release on. Yeah, I just, I, was, I just, I just saw that. We still have the, I saw that press release about the TB, which is, TB, I, actually know, I knew somebody, Alaska. I knew yeah. somebody years ago, a friend of mine who was working, they were a foreigner working in a hotel and they got TB. Yeah. And, you know, she was in quarantine for three months and all this medicine and expensive. I mean, it's like, you think of TB, you think of, I don't, it's bizarre how we still have that in, it in is. Alaska. And it's just weird, right? Because we got, we got TB, we're, we even got our own special Alaska pox. Um, we've got, you know, some STI uh, ongoing things like syphilis. And so the epidemiologists in Alaska and the public health team get to practice their craft. And I think that also has a lot to do with how do we move supplies around? How do we do this kind of quarantine? And, you know, there's a lot big technological curve when you go from an outbreak of 200 people to possibly, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 people. Um, and so we had to embrace that a little bit. And, but it's, it's just kind of amazing that, so that, I think that's a big part of why we're so successful is we've got a well-practiced staff. Have you uh, had anybody, maybe just somebody that stands out, any like high profile people that, that have reached out to you, you know, that we might know, I don't know, like national people or have you had people contact or, or have you been in touch with folks in meetings that, you know, memorable? Yeah. Um, it's just kind of interesting. So like uh, we do the NGA meeting. It's kind of funny, just an aside. You know, I'm a life born and raised in Alaskan. And, you know, I went to school in Chicago, but pretty much it was either Midwest or like the West Coast is where I grew up. So you kind of deal with those personalities. The uh, Now as we're working with the White House, we do these uh, calls on a weekly basis for governors. It's coordinated by the National Governors Association. Um, the chair of the NGA is uh, Governor Cuomo. Of New yeah, York. right. Yeah, he's got. And some, I got to hear him speak. It was a couple of weeks ago, and he's talking and he's doing his thing. And I, I was texting uh, Ann and Hi, uh, Dr. Zink and Heidi Hedberg, public health, and I said he sounds exactly like Trump. He literally <laughs> was saying, "Oh, they've done a fantastic job, and oh, this brilliant work. Thank you for coordinating this. And you're just the best." And I was like, "Oh my gosh, it sounds like Trump. This this guy this must be a New Yorker thing." That was just kind of like this weird poignant moment. <laughs> They're both like New York personalities. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what do you, um, I mean, it's like I said, it's almost, it's almost summer. So are you anticipating things kind of maybe having a like, positive, good summer here in Alaska? Absolutely. So we got uh, our allocation for April's big old numbers. You know, we were at 103,000 of uh, vaccine coming in in March. I think it's like 135,000 uh, without including Johnson and Johnson for the month of April. Uh, and by the time we get our numbers for May, we think by the end of May. So right now, the, the vaccines are only approved for age 16 and up, right? That's the Pfizer vaccine. That's roughly 565,000 Alaskans that are over age 16. And we think throughout the month of May, we're going to have enough vaccine in state for all Alaskans to have the option of having a vaccine. And that's pretty tremendous. Once everybody has the option of having that, 
that I think that really opens up the possibilities for, you know, our normalcy on a summer standpoint, you have got the ability as an individual choice to protect yourself or to, to move forward without that. And so we're, we're trying to plan on that. We think that that's going to be a big step. Do you have any ideas or any um, numbers about people who are just not going to get the vaccine? I saw today there was a, a national article that uh, about 8% nationally are saying hard no. Uh, I, you know, I know we just, there was some polling that came out last week. I don't have it in front of me about the, the hard no. I do know that uh, I think the numbers have decreased. I think a lot of individuals were skeptical or wanting to see the wait and see. And now that they've had so many people that they know have been fully vaccinated for months now and have not had ill effects, I think helps. I got my vaccine and then I went home and I turned on Netflix and uh, I was watching I Am Legend and I was like, this is the wrong movie to be watching So <laughs> when I got my first vaccine. <laughs> so the governor did ask us that when this first came into the state in December, he did ask Anna and I, he goes, this is not going to be an I Am Legend scenario. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, that's like, I was like, I don't want to get I Am Legend in here. I mean, I don't want to be one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's been great. Um, uh, Chad, and I know you're busy. One more thing, I guess I wanted to ask, was there a moment through all of this, like, what was maybe the, I don't want to say scariest, but was there like a moment where you're like, shit? Was there like a very, like a peak kind of wow factor moment, or has it just been kind of rolling slowly and been intense the whole the whole time? It's been intense the whole time. I, I think one of the the most difficult aspects throughout this for me is, you know, being a business owner myself was when we put forward recommendations to do a shutdown, right? For the, even though it was brief, that was, that hurt. And that was one of the things that we look back on and, you know, using the data that we had, um, it, it was enough time to get supplies in because there was a global, there was a global shortage on personal protective equipment. We actually, you know, had to, hire somebody on the ground in China to literally go to factories to make sure he could procure stuff and store it in a warehouse for us so we could get on a plane to supply our hospitals. And I, I remember I, I, that was kind of, for me, one of the wildest early on things I noticed was like, how, how do we not have enough equipment? It was just like crazy to me. How do we not have enough masks? And Yeah. There was, you know what, here, yes, for another moment, I'm sorry. Uh, we were bidding on PPE materials and I got outbid by Bill Gates. What? Yeah. And so I actually got a call back saying, sorry, the Bill, the, the Bill Gates, Bill Melinda Gates Foundation tripled you, the price. Were you like, wa- were you watching it happen live or? I, they, I got a phone call back from the vendor saying they literally called and said, we'll pay triple. And we're like, we can't compete. Even as a state, you can't compete with the Bill and Melinda Gates. Foundation. Damn. That's, that's, that's actually, but, that's a good story. It's kind of funny. But we got, you know, as we got those materials in state and we started dealing with it, you know, that was that was the hard part and then you know we tried to quickly ramp back up and then we got these practices people kind of got into the flow of it right you know we, we had throughout the summer um hospitals change you know their intake process uh they were changing how they'd used gear and we had enough supply and stockpile we had enough testing supplies that i would say that you know even when we had a really big surge last fall and we had our high case count i was not i didn't feel like we were going to be overwhelmed i felt like we had the tools in place in order to deal with it, right? There, that was why the governor did his real like imploring message to Alaskans at the end of November, like, please, you know, we need to pay attention to this and work on this together. And then he started seeing the numbers coming back down. And I was like, 
I think it was, I think it was a good point. That was a poignant moment. It was like, I didn't think we were going to fall off a cliff, but I it was glad to see Alaskans kind of respond to that. Have you, I mean, as a, you know, you're kind of conservative guy and I'm sure you have a lot of conservative um, circles you're in. Have you had a lot of people like friends and people, you know, contact you and have you had any like, what the hell, Adam, what are we like, what are we doing here? Let's go back. You know, have you had any Every of that? Every I, I was going to say it's got to be with the, your, you know, kind of your circle of Valley kind of conservative types. Yeah. Uh, friends and my family uh, always reaching out, trying to figure out like, where are we at now? And that that's one of those things that it helps because I, I get to hear, you know, from, from, from all sides too. I'm trying to talk with all the healthcare providers, trying to talk with my health team, um, just trying to talk with people that are boots on the ground. And like, this is actually what we're seeing. Like, this is what life is like, you know, outside of just the COVID ball. Mm-hmm. This is, how do we do this? And so that's one of those things we've been really trying to make sure we were be magnanimous with we're working with i used to work uh you know in GC, gci and commercial sales and it was totally you know i was commercial focused but i can't tell you how many times people like my friend my internet like something's wrong with my internet or like you know i i want the cable thing or this or that or you know residential and it was like every time they tell somebody you work at gci they wanted like a deal or they wanted you to give them like an extra internet you know <laughs> so i kind of you know on a smaller scale know the feeling yeah well, I mean, I think, like I said before, you know, I think you surprised a lot of a lot of folks. Uh, you, you know, most people I've talked to it, um, it has, especially you. Gra- you grabbed uh, Suzanne Cunningham. I got to ask you about her. She was <laughs> ledge director. You, you scooped her up, huh? That was, uh, you know, I so my my old ledge director Tony Newman um, applied for and got deputy director position at Senior Disability Services, and so he had done many years of service in the department. It was a great hire, good promotion for him. And when this opened, you know, we had some fantastic people reach out wanting to, to, to be the ledge liaison at Hess. When, when, when you called me, I said, I couldn't do it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a joke. They, uh, they reached out and Suzanne was one of them. And I, I remember when she, when she put her name in the hat, I had some, like, I reached out to chief staff Stevens. I said, is this okay that I interview her <laughs> and things like that? Cause you know, she was the glow director and he's like, no, no, this is, it's absolutely fine. So went through that process and Suzanne is just a, Man, she is good. She is just a yeah, no, good skill set. She's been around a long time in the legislature, so she, she has. She has of- been, and everything that we deal with, and else, you know, with our proposed reorganization, with COVID, with the disaster declaration bill and conversation, with all of the other bills that we're pushing from health and social services, uh, I couldn't imagine somebody better for this role than her. She's. Uh, She's a she's an animal, man. She gets after it, and her work ethic is insane. Mm-hmm. Last thing I, I meant to ask you this earlier, but you just brought it up, and I forgot uh, the the plan to kind of split up the department uh, mm-hmm. that was abandoned recently by the governor. Uh, is that permanently abandoned, or is that like are they? Can I, I know the legislature had pushed back on that a little bit. Yeah. So no, we're actually uh, we're still doing our meetings. We're doing town halls and meetings. Uh, department of Law is uh, fixing. Really, what it was, it was it was technical issues. Um, so we actually thought we actually had some support to get this through, but it was a couple technical issues, which Ledge Legal identified. They're like, you know what? We're correct. We don't want to set ourselves up for failure here. And so those are being fixed. And I think they're going to be working with Ledge Legal. Um, I don't know when it's going to be reintroduced because it has to be reintroduced under kind of like odd circumstances, but we are definitely moving ahead. We've uh, just, you know, last week had three or four different meetings with, with groups talking about this. We're going to continue all of our outreach to make sure folks oh. understand this is Definitely an idea we want to pursue. Yeah, that's what I wanted to, to see if that was, that's what I kind of assumed it was some some technical issues, but there is there is the, the plan to move that because it is such a big department and, you know, I, what do I know, but it seems like 
it's bigger. It's the biggest department and there's 3,500 people. And, you know, it, it, it seems like it might be, you know, there might be some benefits from splitting. Yeah. It it, it's all relative, right? You know, so like you'd look at our government compared to other states and it's small, but for Alaska, health and social services has a budget that's equal to 12 other state departments, the governor's office, the court system, and the legislature combined. And we have mm-hmm. enough, we have as many positions as seven other state agencies combined. I know. I look at the budget, you know, it's, it's, it's healthcare and education. It's like, so consumes such a big part of the budget. Yeah. Well, Commissioner Crum, it's been great. You know, I know you got the baby there and uh, I got to say the beard, man, we're, we're not, we're just doing audio here, but that beard, man, I, I that's pretty good. Appreciate it. This is trimmed down. I actually, I had a little bit of a COVID quarantine type beard action going on and uh, my staff was teasing me on zoom. So I had to, I had to, bring it back down you, you you look good you look good too you keep keeping fit you look like i know you lost some weight last time we saw you in person so you, you... I'm trying to stay active that was one thing early on i was like you know i'm not gonna not gonna let this job beat me so we got to stay active and trying to try to move and be outside a damn quarantine 15 <laughs> people call it well i appreciate it. i know you're busy but but uh, great talking to you and a uh, good update and um and i know we'll be seeing you i'm sure on you know press conferences and in public. So really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. Have a great day. Yep. All right, folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.